اهلا مشتاقين عديل Welcome back to another episode of A solo podcast hosted by me, your host, Sara. How's everybody doing? Obviously, my enthusiasm is trying to distract you from the fact that I am a week late to this episode. I apologize profusely, <laughs> but I was working on the quality. It's quality over schedule over here. Quality over everything. I'm going to be honest, this episode was a struggle to write. Not necessarily the content, maybe. I don't know. I need to unpack that a little further, but I really had a hard time writing the script and it might sound a little janky at times and him listen and I hope you like it this of course you can tell by the title is the second part of our journey with uh heart problems my my journey uh, as a as a heart patient a heart surgery patient if you haven't listened to episode one the or not episode one the previous episode which is episode seven the first part of this story I suggest you listen to it because context is important. And now that I've given you that very long introduction, let's get into it. Last episode, I briefly mentioned divine signs and intervention. And I think I want to come back to that because it's been quite the connecting thread throughout my journey with this condition. It was absolutely تصطير من رب العالمين. divine alignment that brought my dad a job opportunity that took us from Khartoum where we were living back to New York at a time when doctors were not only telling him that you know another procedure was necessary and imminent but he also had nothing lined up it all came together in the span of a couple of months I want to say everything just fell into place And on a summer's day in 1994, a couple of months before my 10th birthday, I went in for my second open heart surgery. As they wheeled me into the operating room, my blood-crusted stuffed koala by my side, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's in part one, the surgeon stopped the gurney right outside the operating room to ask me this question. So after we're done, we can take a bit of skin from somewhere else and use it to cover up your scar. Would you like to do that? I lifted my head up off the gurney a little enthusiastically, might I add, and said, no, why would I cover it up? Many people over the years have criticized me, or I should more accurately say chastised me for saying no in that moment. Their argument is that I was too young to make such a big decision. And as a result, I had, quote, ruined my body. that the future woman I would become would be forever mushawaha, deformed, and that I had thus sabotaged any chances I had at marriage. Because really, as a woman, what are you if not just a pretty thing that a man will like? Personally, I appreciate the doctor asking me and not my parents what I wanted done to my body. He gave me a lot of agency in that moment and allowed me to make a big decision about myself at an age when folks would have just talked over me or not even considered me at all. Which brings me to my first point to ponder. Just like our society's tendency to view women as just pretty things that will belong to the men who choose them, children are not seen as people, just things that belong to the adults that made them. So people often consider it irrelevant or unnecessary to involve their kids in any decision-making process about themselves, particularly when it comes to their health. And of course, I understand that not all decisions can be left to the child to make. I'm not making that argument at all. 
But I think we underestimate the power and impact of keeping a child informed about their condition and what is being done to them, to the best of their comprehension ability, of course. Involving the child in this not only gives them agency, but it also allows them to grow to be educated about their condition and thus much more confident and better equipped to deal with it. What that surgeon did with his question is completely recalibrate how I would view my scars in the future. In giving me the power to make that decision, he indirectly taught me that my perception of myself was what was most important. Later on into my teenage and young adult years when I was in the throes of self-esteem and body issues, the only thing I didn't hate about myself was my scar. This, by the way, applies to today. I have still have a lot of body issues, still uh, have a lot of confidence issues surrounding my appearance, but the one thing that doesn't bother me is these scars on my body. This deformity that people insisted was something I needed to be ashamed of and hide away was the thing I clung on to the most. It became a litmus test for me when forming relationships. If you had a problem with my scars, then you had a problem with me, and therefore I had no use for you in my life. I spent about a month in intensive care, looking like the Spider-Man villain Dr. Octopus, just tubes coming out of everywhere, hooked up to machines all around my bed. My oldest brother, Afia, was in his photographer phase back then, and so there are plenty of just these very artsy shots of the hospital room drenched in afternoon sunlight, the sunbeams draped over me as I looked half dead, or otherwise just staring into the camera lens with just utter loathing, disgust, hatred at being photographed while I was in this condition. Because of the sedation, most of the pain I felt was not physical, but emotional. I was groggy, I was restless, trapped in this bed with a thick intubation tube down my very parched throat while I watched my brothers drink the juice and ice water I was brought and eat the jello, everything I was not allowed to ingest. That was also the summer my extended family decided to come for a visit stateside, and they all came from different places for a reunion at Disneyland. The day they left, one of my brothers came into my room telling me my cousin said to say hi before getting on their plane to the happiest place on earth. Seeing the light behind my eyes die out, he decided to make me feel better by saying, maybe they'll get you a t-shirt. A t-shirt, y'all. A t-shirt. Eventually, I was released from intensive care and into a regular room. But because I had spent such a long time in ICU, my body had already started building scar tissue around the stitches. I learned this fact the hard way, when one day two doctors walked into my room and informed my dad and me that it was time to remove the stitches on my abdominal area. The following is a true story. Before I get into the story, there is a very important piece of information you should know. Years later, I now know that the two individuals who walked into that room weren't two doctors, but rather one doctor and one student. 
And the subsequent experience has instilled in me a great fear of med students that persists to this day. Today, there are dissolving stitches that disappear into the body without any need for removal. But back then, doctors had to physically pull the thin filament out of the wound so the body could complete the healing process. The doctor gave me a quick smile, assuring me that it would be quick and with minimal discomfort, and then motioned to his student to get to work. The student grabbed the protruding portion of the stitch and began to pull. The filament wouldn't budge. He pulled a little harder, and I winced a little bit. Hmm, he said, and tried a third time, pulling even harder than the first. The stitch would not move. He wiggled and pulled and wiggled as he pulled and stretched his body back and heaved. But the stitch would not budge. I looked over at my dad for moral support, but also to be like, um, is this normal? Only to find that my dad had turned his back to me and was looking out the door. The doctor, clearly getting impatient with his student, says, pull harder. I held my breath. The student pulled and I felt my lungs be dragged down to my stomach. When he let go, my lungs shot back up my body as if released from a slingshot, crashing against my throat before settling back into my chest cavity. I held my breath harder, intent on not crying in front of these men because all my life I had been told by my doctors that I'm a tough cookie and by my brothers that crying is for girls. So I was not about to ruin my tough guy image now. Instead of recognizing that there was an obvious issue, the doctor interpreted his student's inability to remove the stitches as incompetence. So he pushed him aside and took his place in front of me. The doctor, who was taller and clearly much stronger than his student, grabbed the filament and pulled hard. He thrashed from side to side, ripping apart the scar tissue around the stitch before yanking again. And when he yanked again, my vision turned blurry, and I tried my hardest not to pass out. Then I felt the bed move. I looked down and saw the doctor propping his foot up on the protective railing. He pushed his foot into the bed, grabbed the stitch, and pulled back. My lungs plummeted to my hips. I heard him grunt repeatedly, then felt him let go. My lungs bounced against the roof of my mouth. I panted. He pulled again. The wind was knocked out of me. Time stopped. The pain wouldn't. He grunted harder, and then with a final forceful tug, the stitch came out, and the doctor stumbled back from the bed. There we go, he exclaimed triumphantly as I swallowed my lungs back into my chest. And just like that, the two men left me lying in my trauma. A boy turned back around, finally, to find me hyperventilating, a lone tear rolling down my cheek. And as if sent by God to rub salt in my wound, this man says, I shot my dad a look that said, I hate you, old man, and rolled over to face the other side of the room. I have always thought of this experience as just a funny story to tell at parties and proof of what a badass I've always been. 
But as I listened to the Fosla episode and OT describe the medical racism that eventually led to the failure of his kidney, it dawned on me. Hold on. What is that? Was that what I went through? Medical racism or medical discrimination is by no means a new concept, but it's come to the forefront of popular discourse in the last few years and became a buzzword when Serena Williams opened up about her traumatic experience with childbirth. A year later, Beyonce shared her eerily similar experience. Both women, with all of their wealth, power, and influence, suffered greatly at the hands of doctors who chronically dismissed their pain and whose negligence put their lives and the lives of their children at risk. I'm actually not sure negligence is the right word to use here. There is a long history of institutional racism and the literal use of black people as subjects to experiment on. And of these experiments, countless medical advancements have been made in almost every field. See Henrietta Lacks and cancer, the Tuskegee experiment and syphilis, and the entire field of gynecology. Please go look up the father of gynecology, quote unquote, terrifying. Anyway, all this has dehumanized black people to the extent that it had healthcare professionals believing and being taught that black patients didn't fall ill or feel pain in the same way or at the same level as their white counterparts. As a result, to this day, medical training has crater-sized gaps when it comes to considering the needs of people of color. For example, there are plenty of instances of diseases being misdiagnosed simply because for a very long time, doctors were not trained to spot the symptoms in people of color, and disease markers were only considered as they appear on white skin. A med student went viral and got a lot of backlash as well because he shared a medical diagram of a black pregnant woman and the fetus in her womb. The diagram was drawn by a different med student, 25-year-old Nigerian Chidiabere Ibe. He made all types of medical diagrams with different skin tones by himself because they simply don't exist. I think my attachment to New York and to NYU Hospital, as well as the young age in which I experienced all of that, in many ways gave me the beer goggles, if you will, when it came to my experience. And truth be told, most of my experience was positive. I, you know, had history at that hospital. I was born there. I had my first surgery there. You know, so people knew me. The nurses and the doctors were nice to me. I never really felt different or neglected by any of them. But now older and wiser, I cannot in good faith say that the way those stitches were removed from my body was right. The doctor should have already suspected that after a month, there was bound to be scar tissue around those stitches. And even if we excuse that, once his student was clearly unable to remove them, he should have at least stopped the procedure and explained to me, the patient, or my father sitting next to me, what was happening and why it was such a struggle. Forget all that. The man didn't even take a break. I was a kid, not even 10 years old yet, and this man was slashing through my insides, exerting so much effort that he was out of breath. 
You cannot tell me that putting your foot up on a patient's bed for support as you remove something from inside their body is normal protocol. Unfortunately, my experience with the implicit and explicit bias of medical racism continued as I got older and moved to France. Who, child? You think they don't care about you here? in the late 90s. I began re-experiencing heart issues around my junior year of high school, though it would take me another four years to realize what was happening. The following is a true story. I started feeling severe chest pains one afternoon as I made my way to class, and after some coaxing from a classmate, was convinced to go to the nurse's office for help. J'ai mal au coeur, I said which literally translates to, my heart hurts. And unfortunately for me, is also a French phrase that means, I have an upset stomach. Mange quelque chose, she lazily replied. Eat something. No, I said in English. My heart hurts. The nurse, who didn't speak English and didn't care if I died at her doorstep, threw two sugar cubes at me from the desk drawer beside her and told me to eat them. You have low glucose. <sighs> I ate the sugar cubes out of desperation, really, hoping that maybe the sugar would give me the energy to make it to the classroom. It did not, and I ended up collapsing in the middle of the courtyard. My friend Adrian, who I will never forget, then scooped me up in his arms and carried me to the administration's office as my entire class watched from across the yard. As a Bandak, I was in peak teenage angst, insecure about every cell both inside and outside my body, and especially about my weight. So being carried by my friend, seeing his freckled face turn red as he strained under my weight while my whole class watched, I begged my heart to give out and put me out of my misery. What that useless nurse and the rest of us didn't know in that moment was that my heart had revved into overdrive and I was having what the doctors call a tachycardic episode. My heart was beating at 140 beats per minute, twice the regular speed, and if untreated, I would be on my way to heart failure. And that horse-faced woman gave me two sugar cubes. Anyway, we made it to the office, my dad picked me up, and we went to the hospital where the tachycardia was confirmed. At that time, being treated by French doctors was a miserable experience, especially when you're not French. French people uh, are known <laughs> for hating foreigners, and especially foreigners who are not francophone. And while I spoke fluent French, my parents did not, and therefore I received both the abuse scheduled for them as well as for me. I was terrified. I had no idea what was happening to me. And even though I was still a minor, the hospital put me in a ward with adults and refused to let either of my parents stay with me. So I spent any time outside of visiting hours completely alone. I barely ate during those two or three days I spent in the hospital because they either couldn't or wouldn't offer me a meal without pork. Because if there's a group that French people also hate, it is the Muslims. Anyway, and a year or so later, I graduated and moved away from the hellhole that was France to the hellhole that is Arizona. 
my health got progressively worse in my college years. I got more and more tired. Uh, my sophomore or junior year, Ummi came to visit and I would just come home from class and pass out. She would complain and I'd tell her, I'm just gonna take a little nap, Wogum. And then I would sleep for the next four or five hours, unable to get up. لا يعني أنا اليوم كله حارس الحيط ولما نتي تيجي أحرسك وتي نايمة أنا جاي من آخر الدنيا يا بيت بطل الكسل دو تقومي ساعة بقت مليون but my heart was beating so fast and so hard all the time that I would sway from side to side from the force of it until one day I was trying to put a book back on a shelf above my bed and I suddenly blacked out and fell knocking all the books off the shelf on top of me after much protest, Ummi and my brother convinced me to go to the hospital, where they told me that the tachycardia is back, that my heart was in a lot of stress and exerting a lot of effort, which is what was causing the swaying. They recommended a cardioversion, shocking the heart to jumpstart it back into regular rhythm. Ummi turned to me and triumphantly said, See, I told you you were swaying. And I looked back at her and answered, and see, I told you I wasn't lazy. The look on my mom's face made me immediately regret the joke. Al-Miskina felt so guilty for not recognizing that something was wrong with me when, you know, all my life she had been almost the only person to know what was going on with me. That hit her hard and she was desperately trying to keep it together by cracking a joke only to have me throw it back in her face. I saw the torture in her eyes, like she, like she thought she'd failed me. But how could she? Much like what O.T. said in his Fosla episode, how his mother had been his main champion during his illness, my mother was the rock of our family. She went from being a working mother to giving up her job to take care of three kids, and technically, really, it was my fault that she gave up her job because she gave up her job to take care of me. You know, she remained strong and steadfast in the face of so many harrowing situations, suppressing all of her fears, worries, and anxieties to be the literally the only strong person in the family. She actively fought for me, faced racist and negligent doctors, language barriers, cleared any and everything in our path to get me the best care possible, all while never breaking character. In all of my years of being actively ill, I only remember seeing my mom look visibly scared twice. The following is a true story. Because time is a social construct, I don't remember exactly when this happened, but I do know that I was still in high school at the time. I was in Khartoum for the summer and began to feel some cardiac adab one night. After a few hours of ignoring it and hoping it would go away, Umi decided we should stop playing around and go to the hospital. And a fifth person, I don't remember who, and we headed to Mustashfa Al-Qalb.
امي شرحت لها القصه بتي عيانه بتاع هناك انا مرض قالت لا معليش ما عندنا سراير فاضيه امي pointing to the very empty bed that i'm literally sitting on says كيف يعني ما عندكم سراير فاضيه عيني الدكتور النبطيه وين نايمه نعم نايمه طب صحيها لا والله ما بصحيها اكي تشغلها شنو ما بصحيها اي والله ما بصحيها امشي مستشفى الشعب now i had never been to مستشفى الشعب but i had heard countless stories of what it was like and i believed all of them so i didn't really want to find out for myself i turned to me امي امي عيني عيني يا اخي ما ضروري خلاص رجعكم البيت انا احسن ذاتي يا امي والله ما حسبيش يا امي يعني الله يا امي توديني مستشفى الشعب يا امي طبعا امي سفهتني لك زي الترتيب وتكونا في العربيه ومشينا مستشفى الشعب في اثناء ده امي ضربت لي خالتي دكتوره حصلتنا هناك في مستشفى الشعب يلا يمكن المستشفى يكون اتغير هسه لكن الزمن داك الحوادث عشان تخش لها بتقطع زي حوش صغير كده غايه انا متذكره حوش هلا ما وصلنا الحوش ده في راجل واقف ما عارفه وحرص غفير اللهم سالناه باب الحوادث بوين اشتر له على باب صغير كده هنداك له ومشى هزاته دق لون الباب جا طالع الدكتور يتفاهم مع خالتي وقاموا دخلوني اول ما دخلت بالباب كده الراجل وقف هو الدكتور ده وقف وراي وقال لي خالتي جيبوا له فراش وامسك اقفل الباب وامي واقفه بي برا امي بقت تدق لي الباب هاي هاي دخلوني معاه هاي الدكتور افتح الباب قول لها ما بندخل اقفل في وشها and that's when me lost it هدوني بيتي هدوني بيتي يا يدخلوني يا يدوني بيتي and then give me back my daughter I gotta tell you hearing Umi lose it to the point where she didn't know what language she was speaking anymore made me lose my mind if i was worried before now خلاص i was convinced i was going to die in here why else would i be this scared المهم يا زول العنبر كل ما فتح في بعض يعني المفروض يكون في ستائر تفصل بين السراير صح ما في عايه بس كلنا قاعدين في الهوا سوا في اضاءه رومانسيه جدا لانه في لمبه واحده شغاله على بعد امتار كده في اخر العنبر في رايل كبير راقد لا مؤاخذة يعني مستفرغ بطرف السرير واستفراغه مكون في الواطة تحتيه وزار جايب خبر ومعف على يميني في مرأة كبيرة شكلها على وشك الموت ولا مؤاخذة برضو يعني مرقدنا عريانة زي ما الله خلقها I remember thinking why would that lady be naked like that little did I know I was about to find out غير الدكتور اللي استلمني العنبر تاني فيه دكتورتين كلهم التلاتة ديل مكومين حول ديسك صغير كده في نص العنبر يلا بدل ما يشوفوا الراجل المستفرغ ولا المرأة اللي بتموت جنبي دي ولا حتى أنا المسكينة الجاية بمشكلة قلب المفروض يعني مفروض تكون emergency قاعدين بتونسوا في أمي اللي حدث الساعة المرأة المجنونة المفلهمة اللي بتكورك بالإنجليزي غاية المغتربين ديل كرهونا ذاته فالحين بس يجي في كوا فينا كده في الساعة ديك طبعا انا داير الارض طبلعني غمدت عيوني وقعدت اشحد في ربي يا الله تسكت امي يا الله تهدي سراي يا الله والله الناس ديل كان انا ما مت براي بيقتلوني ما غسساي من عمايلة دي بعد زي عشرة دقايق ولا حاجة جات ممرضة قالت لي قومي قلعي هدومك عشان نركب لك الجهاز 
طبعا البت خبره في القلب وفي جهازات القلب طوال قمت قلعت فنلتي ورقدتها الممرضه ادتني نظره كده بتاعت يا الله جني وجن الزول ما بيسمع الكلام قلت لك قلعي هدومك اي ما مش الجهاز بتاع القلب قلعت الفنيلة اقلع البنطلون أم اقلع البنطلون لشنو الجهاز بتركب فيه البنطلون بيأثر على الاجهزة اها البنطلون يا قلعي يلا يلا يا زول قلعت البنطلون وقعدت عالضاير المرة ركبت الجهاز في صدري وخلاص بعد ذاك بدأت تلملم في عفش عشان تمشي قمت انا شلت الطرح اللابسه في راسي غتيت بها ما يشيم يعني الساعه الممرضه تنزع لك الطرح مني قلت لك بتاثر على الاجهزه جد على الطرح يوم راسي وفاتت تفتكروا بعد الزله دي كلها في زول جا كشف علي هل في زول ساج اخذت سماعه في صدري سمع قلبي جد بيه الحته دي ذاتها اصلا بيسوي في شنو نو اوف كورس نوت انستيد They asked me about my mom. Hey, um, my dear, I'm not afraid of you. You don't live here, right? Where are you from? America. Hmm, it's clear. Uh-huh. Are you from here or America? George Bush, come on. Tell me how to go. When I said بس بس وروني كيفين يعني انوم وانا راقده عريانه قدام خلق الله المهم زي الساعه خمسة صباحا جات الممرضه بتاعت قبيل ديك ذاتها شايله لها طشيط وفرشه اسنان خجتني كده يعني قال عشان المرض صحيني وانا عيوني فاتحات قدر الرياله بعشره من الخوف العيره ما غمدتهم ذاته قالت لي قومي سوكي اول ما دخلت الفرشه في خشمي اتفتفت الطوال أنا ما حقدر أشرح لكم إحساس إنه فرشة أسنان تكون مكومة في لسانك زي كوم قش ده إحساس ما يتوصف It's so unnatural that I'm gagging now just thinking about it مصمصت خشمي في الطشط قومي الممرضة أشيل الموية دي زاتر كانت في خشمي وأكشحيها بباقي فرشتها وبأي حاجة في واطاط العنبر الموية اللي كانت في خشمي دي زادت على مويه تاني من جردل ولا وين ما بعرفه ومسحت بال عنبر زيت ترتيب وفتحت الباب لزت لك المويه برا في الحوش I fixed my eyes on the ceiling and tried to pretend that I was somewhere far far away from here بعد شويه الشمس طلعت and first rounds began I knew rounds began because I heard a loud booming voice in the courtyard The voice belonged to legendary cardiologist Dr. Siddiqa Bo. Allah irham wa'ghfir lew. He was my doctor while I was living in Khartoum and also happened to be Naseeb Khali. He was yelling at my mom for not telling him inni ragatta mustashfa. I closed my eyes tight, knowing inni hayi dakhili idini nafsi shakla ladali ummi. Just then, the door burst open and in stormed Dr. Siddiq, followed closely by a group of Kamtashar med students. I squeezed my eyes open and looked down at the foot of my bed at the group. Peeking behind the towering figure of Dr. Siddiq was a young man I recognized as one of my older cousin's friends, who I had met earlier that summer and was at our house all the time. He was waving excitedly at me as I lay there with nothing between my naked body and his eyes but a sheer, thin headscarf.
Forget the heart problems. It's a miracle that embarrassment hasn't killed me yet. On the next episode of Fagotulation. For about a month before final exams, Omi had been calling me, begging me to go in for a checkup. I kept putting it off because I was busy studying and also convincing Abui to send me to Taiwan for a year. As a Chinese language major, I needed to go put my education to practice, and all my professors had recommended I go live in a Mandarin-speaking country for at least a year. That was the card Umi used to get her away. So, three days after my graduation ceremony, after I had made plans with a friend and bought my ticket to Taiwan, I went in to get the checkup that Umi was so obsessed with. Like I said. I only remember seeing my mom look visibly scared twice. That experience in Sudan that you heard about was the first. The second is gonna make you hate me. It's a scripted podcast, and this episode was brought to you via Islam Sati and Ali Nuruddin's Ahl Al Amal. First of all, ba. Second of all, the video is gorgeous. You need to go on YouTube and watch the video right now. You know, it's giving like Sufi vibes. It's giving you tourism. It's giving you a Sudan bari gimil. It's beautiful. Please go check it out. And I believe you can find the song wherever songs are streamed. Feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at bsonblast on Twitter at the same handle. You can leave a comment on the SoundCloud. I love the comments on SoundCloud. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts on Google Podcasts. Listen, find me wherever you find me. Just find me.